This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 109, recorded on February 16, 2023. I'm one of many co-hosts today. I'm Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with one of my former and longtime co-hosts, Dr. Ryan Roberts, who's also brought a number of other guests uh, for our discussion today. So I'm going to turn it over to Ryan. All right. Thanks, Tim. Well, we had a special guest with us today here at Nationwide Children's, and so I, I wanted to introduce also two of our colleagues from the Institute of Genomic Medicine, one of the directors, Elaine Martis, and one of my close collaborators and colleagues, um, Katie Miller. And Katie and I have invited our guest, uh, Trevor Pugh, from the University of Toronto to be with us today. Uh, Trevor is a molecular geneticist and a cancer genomics researcher who specializes in the detection of tumors and the characterization of tumors using circulating tumor DNA or cell-free DNA, and also is an expert in single-cell genomic technologies, which is one of the reasons that we've had him out today. So we're excited to have Trevor, and we thought that his work might be of interest to our audience. Welcome, Trevor. Thanks so much for the invitations. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you for bringing the rain with you. (laughs) (laughs) Hello from Canada. (laughs) Trevor, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and and what some of the work you're doing right now that you're really excited about? Yeah, so I'm a clinical laboratory geneticist. So I'm right at that interface between research and clinical application. And that being right sort of at that line totally informs where what we pursue on the research side. And when something is really working and catches fire in a good way, that's when we start to move that into clinical application as well. So sort of have one foot in the discovery basic science area but also have activities in accredited clinical labs. So when there's a technology or even a way of analysis or a way of thinking that's ready for clinical application, it's sort of our group's job to operationalize and put scientific discoveries into practice. And you've had a couple of recent papers and preprints that outlines the application of some of those technologies to some clinical situations that where there's some kind of exciting results right now, right? Yeah, the area we're most excited about is the concept of cell-free DNA as a cancer surveillance tool. So our work has been as part of our, we have a national consortium called the CHARM Consortium. And the concept there, participants all have a genetic diagnosis of a familial cancer syndrome. So they're all carriers of usually a loss of function variant in a tumor suppressor, P53, BRCA1, BRCA2, And they already interact with the Canadian healthcare system at least once a year for a medical exam. And so this is a great research opportunity because they can also consent to participate in CHARM and for our type of research, provide a blood sample. And so the question we want to ask is, can that blood test find cancer at the same time or potentially early? We've shown in that preprint the ability to find cancer early um, or earlier than the current surveillance method. Yeah, that's really awesome. So these are these are patients and families who are very anxious about surveillance for cancer because they have such a high risk for developing it, right? One of the interesting research activities in CHARM is that both uh, engagement with patients and with providers. And what we hear from patients, they describe themselves, the phrase we hear over and over 
is ticking cancer time bombs. Really this idea, they know they're at risk for cancer at some point, there's a pain somewhere in their body and the mind instantly goes to cancer. So it's really been engaging with them around what's their current experience, but what could an experience look like that included a blood test as well? And, and the big knock-on effect that they're looking for is that removal of anxiety. So can you get a negative test and potentially be tested more often rather than waiting an entire year for your next surveillance visit. So, so it's kind of become like standard of care for these patients that we do like whole body MRIs annually and things like that, trying to see if we can catch things early so that we can treat these patients in a, in a less morbid way where they'll have better chances of long-term survival. But your study found that there might be opportunities not only to be less invasive, but maybe to do even better by being less invasive. Well, and the goal isn't to replace the current surveillance mm -hmm. modality, it's to put ctDNA as a tool that refines the timing and the uh, precision of those uh, screening tests. So where we think this might sit is cell-free DNA is the upfront test. When you do have a positive result, you then verify that using whole body MRI, for example. Uh, as a confirmatory test. So why well. don't you summarize for, for our listeners, like what were the key findings of this study? So this is a study of carriers of Leaf-Raumeni syndrome. Uh, and these are families, as you alluded to. So we had both uh, adults and children. Uh, we had over 85 participants. Uh, and they all provided a blood sample at their screening, at their screening test. And when we could get it, we got intervening blood tests as well. And our strategy originally was to do targeted sequencing of P53. So these, these individuals are carriers of a germline variant of P53. So the thinking was, we assume these tumors are gonna have that second hit. So we had this panel looking for that second hit, but we also were cognizant that we couldn't build the entire assay around that one gene. So we also implemented a fragmentation uh, analysis, which I'd love to go into in more detail. Uh, and a methylation analysis as well. So we're using that same blood test, but looking at it in multiple different ways. And what we found in several cases, we're able to roughly half of the patients who had an active cancer diagnosis, we found that secondary P53 mutation. The surprising part to me was what about the other 50%? So we definitely had a good proof of principle on our hands. We were finding active cancer circulating in blood. But it still wasn't a perfect test. There was still the other 50% that we still couldn't detect. The other finding was that secondary cell-free DNA signal in the just under a third of the patients who had a negative screening result. And this is the population we're most excited about because despite having just had that surveillance visit, we're still finding that secondary P53 and other mutations as well. And this is really the opportunity for the greatest impact. And we're now following those patients to see whether they in fact do develop cancer. Not yet in the preprint, but in the current version of this manuscript, we have included the imaging data as well. And there are five patients who were able to find that cancer before imaging. So we have a negative imaging result and negative cell-free DNA, subsequent positive cell-free DNA results, and then a positive imaging result. So it's really that interplay of the molecular biology, but also the clinical imaging data together that is really the likely to be the test. So you're future. identifying patients we might want to look harder or, or keep a closer eye on because we see things that might mean there's something brewing. Right? Yeah, there, and there's signal there. The other finding was how confident we were in a negative result. So the patients where we just found no hint of cell-free DNA, they we still didn't find it. And, and this <laughs> is not an area we played up, but it's what you actually want in the screening test is the negative predictive value was extraordinarily high. 
the false positive rate was relatively high, but you could follow that up with an imaging result as well. So for this very specific application in the high-risk cancer population, the cell-free DNA test really seems ideally uh, suited. So Elaine, you're an expert in the translation of genomic technologies into the clinic, right? What excites you about this work? Well, as you and Tim well know, we do also run mm -hmm. survivor clinics yeah. here for our patients with known susceptibility, many of whom have studied on our cancer protocol. And, you know, actually, I was telling Trevor last night that for the last year or so, I've been thinking about what would it be like to introduce the same sort of concept into our survivorship clinic, as well as our long-term survivors, because as you know, patients who experience chemotherapy and radiotherapy do have elevated secondary cancer rates. So I think- Even both, outside of having- Exactly, outside of a susceptibility, right? And so I think the combination there could be incredibly powerful, just as Trevor has described in terms of the peace of mind component, but also as we well know, the early detection aspects you know, can be monumental. It also occurs to me, and I'm sure you've thought about this, longer term, this interplay between cell-free DNA and imaging may actually result in better algorithmic prediction approaches that can really augment, I think, in very significant ways, our ability to, to detect early, uh, diagnose early, and treat early. I, I don't know if that's sort of your next paper that's going into the biomarkers. <laughs> These are very long-term and ambitious yeah. studies, but I think the technology is there to actually propose them and start to yeah. do some of the prospective work to, to put into practice. Right. And it, it is that prospective work that'll take, as you're, as you're mentioning, Ryan, to sort of really move it to the level of where these patients coming in, you know, for their whole body MRI also give a blood draw. Um, Katie and I have mentored a, a young woman who works in the lab, who's a Lee Fraumani, a patient who's been treated here. And I, I posed to her this question one day in the lab, when you came in for your once a year MRI, because she comes to our survivor clinic, would you mind giving a draw of blood and sort of explaining what the potential advantages will be of the liquid biopsy? And she looked at me and said, I'm really good at giving blood. <laughs> so I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I think that, that the uptake, probably your, your agreement or consent rate onto the protocol was probably quite high. It's an amazingly engaged community, really yeah. excited by the potential. The risk is not to oversell it right. but, and to like do the studies, but it's really this yeah. patient partnered research that it's been really rewarding just to learn about or, and think about what this test could look like in practice, exactly. not just from pure discovery, but how are we actually going to set up and configure the test. Right. Katie, can you talk about the technology itself and how difficult is it? How long does it take? What, what, does it, what will it take? Will hospitals be able to do this someday yeah. or they'll have to send to major centers? Yeah, the technology itself. So we've actually been looking at MRD and CSF. So the technology itself of isolating DNA, especially from pediatric cell-free DNA, the yield can often be pretty low. Imagine even from blood. So I think that would be a hurdle, you know, that you might have to overcome. Uh, and then Trevor and I were actually just discussing before this, there are many different ways, and in his preprint, he talked about this, there are many different ways that you can look at the DNA. So we talked about pragmatomics, he talked about methylation patterns, you can target different maybe variants that you might think would be there, for example, like a second hit in TB53, but alone, those methods might not be sensitive enough. So it's almost like a combinatorial approach that needs to be taken, but if you're limited on DNA, you might have to decide 
which method you would use, right? And which has the most sensitivity. And of course, detecting, you know, early detection of cancer versus detecting recurrent disease is different. Um, so those methods would differ there. But yeah, I was actually wondering about the utility of other biofluids and if you had thought about that and if you think that would add. Yeah, cell-free DNA as a concept has, I mean, traditionally it's been in blood, but the potential for urine, yeah. certainly yeah, in some of the BHL, bladder cancer collected. carriers, yeah. a lot Saliva, of potential maybe. there. Uh, CSF is hard to get, but yeah, a very rich source of material if you can get enough of it. Yeah. I think the challenge is which cancer is it? Yes. And it, that's where the combination of technologies is so powerful. It's not just to say, it's almost worse. There's a cancer somewhere. We don't know where it is. Right. Because what we've heard from the medical geneticists is, how am I going to use this? Okay, you found it. Great. Tell me where to image, to scan. Should it be whole body MRI? And that's where especially data sharing across programs that are doing this type of work in the same way is very powerful because we're not, especially for the rare tumors, we're never going to see them all at one site, but you can put all this data in one place and build that classifier. Do you think there'll be any hints in what mutations you do find as to where the tumor might've come from? Like different characteristic yeah. mutations of different tumor types? Uh, not using our current panel-based approach, but definitely using a whole genome-based approach. So this first study in the preprint was looking at a narrow set of genes, but we've now learned from that experience and are now doing the entire genome from cell for DNA. And there have been other, um, other groups, deep tumors, one algorithm I know of, that looks at patterns across the genome to just say, there's not just mutations, but these clusters of mutations are associated with this specific cancer type. So I think we're gonna get there, but we're gonna have to do that study to look where um, to map these specific clusters to specific cancer types. Uh, but it's really informed where we've gone with the CHARM consortium, which is go as comprehensive as possible so we can build those classifiers and start to make those inferences. You'll be able to tell them, look in the left lobe of the liver. <laughs> <laughs> if we could say left lobe, I think if we could say liver, that would be, that would be a great start. Right. But we, but we should also point out that there's also really focal applications of these technologies, right? I'm thinking of like Brian Crompton, who's been running studies within COG now for years and starting to get some mature data, showing that if we have a patient with rhabdomyosarcoma was the one that just got published, we can, I, we can take that patient's tumor and figure out what characterizes that tumor, and then we can follow their blood to detect relapse sometimes before we can see it on imaging. Yeah, I know like, Brian's work really well. It's yeah. really beautiful. And his application, especially at looking at early relapse yeah. tumors, it's not just about finding it early, but it's also looking at how these tumors evolve over yeah. time. So really the two concepts actually go hand in hand. Yeah. And we can learn from the relapse context and apply that to early detection as well. So all that data is valuable to not just find cancer, but also to classify it as well. I've always, I've always found it kind of crazy that we have all of this just DNA circulating in our body and it, and it can tell us so much about what's going on. We never, I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't think about that as like a diagnostic tool. Actually, that's a good question. Is it all cell-free DNA or is some of it circulating tumor cells that you're picking up? It's usually I open my talks with a vocabulary slide saying yeah. cell-free DNA is everything circulating tumor DNA is the extraordinarily small fraction that come from cancer cells. And I say cancer cells very specifically because sometimes tumors are a mixture of immune cells, of cancer cells, of stromal cells. And our assay is really going right to the root of the cancer cells themselves. The cell-free DNA component actually has 
all sorts of goodies in there. So immune response is also read out in your cell free DNA as well. And we've started to use the methylation assay that we talked about in the preprint for inferring expansion or contraction of immune cell populations as well in the context of immunotherapy. So trying to understand if you have a cancer treatment that stimulates the immune system, can we tell whether that has happened by looking at their cell-free DNA as well? Uh, how does the DNA get there? Our listeners might want to know. Is it just from breakdown of, of tumor cells? You know, it's actually, or? in general, it's cell death. But more specifically, how the cells die is actually quite different between healthy cells and cancer cells. And we know this because if you look at the DNA coming from cancer cells, it's actually the cell-free DNA. It's shorter than it comes from healthy cells. So a healthy individual has a certain size profile. But when a cancer is developing, you can see that size profile shrink. So for some reason, we are getting shorter fragments coming from cancer cells. But I don't know if the mechanism is known. I don't know if you've come across this, Elaine, but it's a bit of a... I'm sure it is because, as you know, this is a subdiscipline of cancer, right? People study apoptosis in yeah. extraordinary detail. So probably it's well understood. I'm not sure that I'm the person that can describe it. But for the listening audience, this is now a, yet another omics. Yeah. So uh, Trevor alluded to it earlier. This is now right. called fragmentomics which I love. And it's even in the adult cancer world being utilized with the cell-free DNA to do the same sorts of things. So for example, there are beautiful studies in lung cancer and people who are smokers or have COPD or have environmental exposures that are expected to develop cancer. This is now developing out as a component of a comprehensive test that predicts people who are developing lung cancer. Well, we can actually infer some really important things about like the epigenetic state of the cells from just the size of the DNA in the blood. Yeah, that's true too. Which yeah. Is, which, which I found fascinating. It's uh, very you might want to explain that a little more. Well, so each cell has portions of the DNA that are poised as switches that can be activated by different components and pathways of the cell and others that are just made inaccessible and turned off. Those aren't important to the cell in this, in this particular state. Cancer changes the way that those different parts of the genome can be accessed. And you can actually gain some information about what parts of the genome are accessible by the way that it uh, fragments and are you able to look at epigenetic markings on yourself? So in this study, we had a whole secondary assay purely for DNA methylation. So we did traditional, conventional DNA work, but we also used technology invented in Toronto by Daniel Carvalho's lab that is an antibody that pulls methylated DNA out of circulation. And so that's very helpful because if you have a signature of those molecular switches Ryan talked about, that is the ticket to say, not just do you have cancer, you have the set of epigenetic marks or switches associated with a specific cancer type. So in this paper, we had enough patients with breast cancer to build that breast cancer classifier. So we were able to say, not just do they have mutations and fragment changes, they also have an epigenetic signature so we could score out breast cancer. What we really wanted to do was score out all the rare sarcomas, the adrenal corticoid carcinomas, all these other cancers, but we just had one or two patients with these, so it wasn't powered enough to build that classifier. But we're hoping over time, as we have more and more patients participating in the study and sharing the data within the consortium, we can start to build those classifiers for other cancer types as well. Stay tuned. So yeah, so what do you see is the next step 
for all this kind of work? What are your next several R01s looking like? Well, the, <laughs> our big takeaway was it's not going to be just one assay. You can't look at mutations alone. You can't look at fragments alone. You can't look at methylation alone. It's this multi-omic idea where you take all of these and build different classifiers for different cancer types and for the most sensitive level of detection possible. So our current strategy is comprehensive. So it's complete genome as the conventional sequencing approach, looking at all those different aspects. And for the methylation, we're pursuing multiple avenues. We're continuing to look at the MEDIP approach. We're also looking at uh, what's called genome-wide methylation profiling, where you just sequence a whole genome, but you convert it into a methylated state. And yeah, it's essentially a technology development uh, exercise. We have all this data. It's now analyzing and looking at it in different combinations to see what works best for our patient population. Can you give us a sense of how much bioinformatics manipulation or analysis, computer power, manpower, woman power, what's it take to sort of get from the test result of the characterization to interpretation? It's a huge amount to build it, to go from zero to get yourself set up. But once your pipelines and all your infrastructure in place, this is the beauty of cloud computing and the internet the scale is absolutely there. And that's really where we are now. We're scaling up from hundreds of patients to thousands, potentially to tens of thousands of patients. But ironically, the next thousand patients are way faster and easier than the first 10 or the first hundred that we did. So definitely investing in reusable infrastructure is absolutely the, the ticket here, infrastructure building. Well, I think too, I think when sometimes when our patients or our insurance companies hear about fancy new sequencing tests because of history they always kind of are really worried about is this going to cost so much that no one can use it right so maybe you can speak a little bit both elaine and trevor about how, how do we make these accessible to our patients this is a hot topic at dinner last this night. was a hot topic <laughs> at dinner last night and you know as we discussed there the cost of testing and the focus on it is really misplaced. It's very myopic because as I'm sure Trevor can tell you, the health economics around early detection modalities or moving from a very expensive analysis intensive a component like whole body MRI to something that's much more focused as a result of the outcome of the types of tests that are being done on the blood DNA then shrinks the dollars for that follow-on exam. But there's more to it than that in terms of the value of early detection, the ability in many cases to remove a newly developing tumor surgically or treat it with very focal radiation such as proton. All these things sort of bundle up into a better long-term health equation for patients. That's really what insurance companies need to be looking yeah. at. So it's a pay me now or pay me later yeah. equation. If you want to be really crass about it, that's really how it comes down to it. And, you know, one of the programs that we were talking about that we're developing here is really starting to look more broadly at the health economics of genomics and other omics being in the mix around patient diagnosis, adding precision indicating therapeutic angles that might be valuable for consideration by oncologists like you and Tim, and really um, trying to work that into a larger health economics view rather than this myopic, how much is testing costing me view. I think even outside of the direct healthcare costs, there are the patient costs as well. 
the blood tests are much more accessible than a highly centralized annual surveillance system. Uh, we have patients who, you know, you have to take multiple days off work to travel, come to your surveillance test as a family often, and then go back to wherever you are. So really making that blood test, especially in this country like Canada, that's huge and their population can be quite dispersed, having local access to that test, especially outside of just an annual visit, has additional indirect costs to the patients themselves. And we certainly know, you know, from our experience, pulling in patients from multiple states around Ohio, as well as within Ohio, that these travel costs can be a barrier to patients and families and are really the result of a lot of aspects of non-compliance because they simply can't afford to, to do the travel. Do you have any predictions about when we might be seeing these kinds of tests be routinely used? We're working hard to set up that prospective study across Canada. We think the technology is really there. Um, so we're really trying to gear up that last study that really will randomize patients to get a blood test or not. And, and that true randomized trial, that's sort of the gold standard in, in clinical medicine. To, and, but in this case, it's not a drug, it's a clinical trial of the test. Um, so I, I think that's the last big experiment that we need, in this case, in a thousand patients. Uh, that's really the last experiment we need to really... To but then you'll need to follow them pretty long, right? To see if it impacts their diagnosis or their survival? Yeah. So the study we're most interested in will have some short-term goals. What is done with this result? Does it find cancer earlier or not? And can something be done about it? There is definitely a, a longer-term survival question as well, but I'm not, not quite convinced we have to have a 10-year outcome survival result to start moving on these uh, assays sooner than that. Good to hear. <laughs> and, I, and I would say too, several of the upcoming children's oncology group trials have integrated within them some the definitive circulating tumor DNA trials that would enable that to become a standard. Yeah, I like the phrase molecular response, where you can have a very quantitative measure yeah. of cancer response without necessarily having to wait several more additional years for a clinical response. So it's been a, sort of an interesting invention or redefinition of new terms in terms of when is that technology ready for implementation? Well, that's fantastic. I appreciate your being here today. This is a great topic and really a big part of, I think, the future of, of clinical cancer medicine. So uh, thank you for being at the forefront of it and for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. It's been a great discussion. Thanks very much. Thanks. And th thanks, Elaine and Katie, uh, for being here as well and contributing your knowledge and, and Ryan for co-hosting. And thanks to this team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twibbo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsumpdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.